interdependent and a communal journey, right? You're not just like, um, and I think that's one thing that's also a really important part of the first gen experience that that burden of that backpack you're carrying is your backpack, but it's your parents and your siblings are in there and your cousins and then sometimes your community. Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Dr. Glenda Guzman. The next two Student Affairs Now episodes are dedicated to the first generation experiences of college students and professionals. But in today's episode, I'm joined by our panelists to discuss topics surrounding the experience of first generation college students. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast, an online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Before we jump into the conversation, I wanna acknowledge that today's episodes are sponsored by Stylus Publishing. So please visit styluspub.com. Check out the student affairs, diversity, professional development titles, Use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can, turn, they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Glenda Guzman. I'm the Associate Dean of Students and Director of Residential Life at UC Berkeley. I use the he series as my pronouns. And I'm hosting this conversation today from my home in Livermore, California, which is the ancestral home of the unceded territory of the Palin tribe of the Ohlone peoples. I'm very excited about this topic and the guests to talk story about first generation students on college campuses. We are also filming today's episode with hopes to release this episode near or close to the November 8th date, which is the National First Generation College Celebration Month, yay, to honor the signing of the Higher Education Act of 1965. And I hope this episode, as well as next week's episode, contribute to bring attention to our first generation students. So let's meet our panelists. I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Robert Longwell-Grice from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We have Roshne Jahangir, who is from University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. And we have Dr. Latanya L.T. Reese-Miles from Menlo College in California, just kind of south of me. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, nice to be here today. Thanks, Glenn. So I am so excited. And let's, let's introduce you more to the audience and just share a little bit more about yourselves and what do you do and your journey into the work that you do now? And how did your connection to this topic on first-generation students come to be. Um, Rob, why don't you kick us off? Okay, sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm with the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I spent my last uh, 20 years here, and I'm recently retired. Uh, so I'm staff emeritus working for the School of Education and um, was the Dean of Students for a while here as well. But in regards to how I started this topic, it was my dissertation, dissertation topic um, some 20 years ago um, from the University of Louisville. And from that point forward, I think that was really the time when we were learning a lot more about first-generation students who, the literature was always very clear, at least from a quantitative analysis, that the most important thing in terms of whether you go to college, whether you graduate from college, is if you have at least one parent who went to college. We had this quantitative data that said, this is true, um, but for me, the question was always why? Mm. So for the past 20 years, uh, that's been what I've been trying to research is to answer this question of why and doing it on more of a qualitative basis. And now with the release of uh, my book, we're really taking a look at the notion of intersectionality as it applies to first-generation college students. Wonderful. Rob, I'm looking forward to unpacking more with you in this conversation. Congratulations on your retirement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and let's go to Rajne. 
Sure. Hi, my name is Rashni Jahangir. Um, I am an associate professor of higher education, but I also teach undergrads, which I very much enjoy in first year experience programs and learning communities. I am the co-editor, the inaugural co-editor of the Journal of the First Generation Student Success out of NASPA. Uh, and Rob is an associate editor as well with us. Um, I uh, came into this work um, by happenstance. Um, and, and luckily it happened very early in my career. And because of that, it changed the trajectory of my life um, in many meaningful ways. So um, I, um, I'm the first person in my family to live in this uh, United States. My parents went to college outside of the United States. And when I finished my master's degree in counseling and student personnel psychology and began looking for work in student affairs, I was hired in the federally funded TRIO programs, working for TRIO SSS and McNair Scholars programs. Shout out to all my TRIO family. Woo woo! Um, so that was a moment that um, shifted everything. It made me see education as a civil right um, and that there's a political engagement that we need to have to open the doors of access to students. And for me personally, it felt like home. Um, I felt like all the things I didn't understand uh, in my international context, um, I um, and muddled through, there were other folks around me who didn't understand them, but also understood how to speak multiple languages and walk, walk in multiple worlds, uh, which I thought of as you know incredible skills. So um, that moment um, and that 10 year career in trail um, pretty much shaped my research and my interest in uh, sort of being at the nexus of scholarship and practice in student development and student affairs. Thank you for that introduction and welcome. Latanya or LT. Welcome. LT it is, high school nickname, never went away. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Um, so I'm currently Dean of Student Affairs at Menlo College, uh, beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I'll, I'll just lead with, I am the type of administrator that I needed as a first generation college student trying to make my journey um, through multiple institutions. So um, I was a transfer student. I was uh, the, the type of student that now has names for it. We didn't really have names for these things. Being first gen, non-traditional, uh, food insecure. I, I had many of those experiences. Thankfully, I was also involved in the TRIO program, first as a student in, um, in the McNair Scholars Program, and then had the great fortune to be a director myself. And funny enough, even though I know I, I knew I was the first in my family to go to college, I didn't know I was first gen. I didn't, I didn't know about that identity until I was in my graduate program, my PhD program. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, wait, there's other people besides me. It's not just me and my crazy family. No, it's a whole identity. So I've actually had <clears throat> uh, a lot of uh, uh, experience and um, been blessed to be involved in this work in a number of different ways. So outside of my own campus, uh, I've founded a digital com an online community of support. And I know we'll talk about that later, but the Empowering First Generation Students Facebook group, I founded the Black First Gen Collective. So I'm finding a lot of ways to address what seems like a simple topic, but really isn't. Most definitely. I uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, you know, as a, uh, myself, as a first gen student, I love how you, you state that not, not knowing, not having a name and just really just having these experiences of what, you know, when I was a student, I didn't really know how to, identify or classify what I was going through, um, if, if you want to call it that. So, but for the listeners, let's start at the top here and establish for our listeners who are first-generation students on college campuses today. And, 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 and I think maybe the question I want to ask is what do we want listeners to know about the experiences of first-generation students? Rob, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, you know, this whole notion of, the, of what is a first-generation college students has kind of morphed uh, over the years, and um, you know, Rashid LT with, with the, some trio background will know that. And one level, it appears to be simplistic. Um, first generation college students are students whose parents have never gone to college. 
but then there's some discussion out there about, well, does it matter if one parent went to college versus neither parent? Does it matter if they attempted college but didn't finish? Does it matter if you got a two-year degree? Um, so although, as I say, on the surface, it is on the simple, your parents didn't go to college. Um, but it's a little bit more than that. And the other thing that we've been exploring, I think, uh, in the last few years, it used to be that first-generation college students was kind of a monolithic term. Here's first generation, your parents didn't go to college, that's what defines you, that's that. And so for a while, people were kind of looking for this magic bullet that would solve all the problems of first-generation college students. And, and to a certain degree, I think people are still looking for that. But now with this notion of intersectionality that's come into play, we know it's not just first-gen end of story, it's first-generation and your socioeconomic status, first-generation in race, first-generation in gender, uh, first-generation LGBT. So there's other things that have come to make this a much more complex term than we originally thought. But I guess back to your, um, you know, to the definition of it from a, from a federal standpoint and research standpoint, it's students whose parents did not go to college. Thanks, so I'll Rob. turn it over to my colleagues here to see, to yeah. hear LT. their thoughts. Yeah, LT, thoughts? Sure, I think to build upon that, I, wanted, I want people to also consider um, the whole educational pipeline and to think that there are, um, there are different moments where students need to be reintroduced to the term. I think what happens right now when we just focus on like Rob was saying, like that earlier definition, which has obviously a lot of utility, but we oftentimes focus a lot on just the college application process um, and so the, uh, oftentimes that's a moment where many students realize that they are first generation because FAFSA is asking questions and colleges are asking questions and they talk to their parents. Well, there are also moments, like I said, there, there are also instances where someone may not realize they're first gen until much later going on to graduate school or later on even as a, as a, as a professional member. So we have to continually remind people what the definition is and why it matters. And I think the last point I'll add to this is the great strengths that come with being first generation, that this isn't about deficit finding or faults or anything like that. There are a number of things and skills and funds of knowledge that first generation communities bring to our campuses and institutions. Rashne? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the really important things um, to think about when we talk about first-gen identity is, yeah, it's, it's a very heterogeneous group, right? It's not um, easily categorized or pigeonholed. And in the chapter that I wrote in Rob's book, one of the things we take up is what's in a name? Why use that? Why use first-gen? Um, and so one thing to think about is what does it mean to have an identity that only comes into play because you enter higher education, right? Because when you're elsewhere in the world, you might be an immigrant, you might be black, you might be a woman, you might be, but these identities are, you are negotiating them before you come to college or before you come to high school or wherever else. But first gen is something that comes into play when you enter this place that your parents, your family, your community did not know. And I think that's a really important distinction. Um, and so when I think about talking about first gen, I think about like, how do we talk about the demography of what it means to be first gen, right? And this, um, this intersectionality of race and class and what NASP was calling first gen plus identity. But I also think it's about sort of naming um, how in this country in particular, race and racism, class and classism, generational poverty has made the pathways to and through college different for some people and often in this group of people than others and the structure of the place that they're coming to is not built for them so that's a big part of being first gen right um and i, I think that's an important part and then just to say to, to the point that lt was making that um if uh, you think about first gen as folks who've walked in many worlds like the lived experience of being first gen then they bring those skill sets to the academy. 
we just in the academy tend not to view those skill sets as skill sets because we're talking about other stuff like did you take the ACT how do you do on it um what did you do on your APs like how many clubs were you in not like did you take a bus pick up your cousin then go fill out your grandma's insurance forms then go back all those things that are just about massive skill sets right so I think it's all of those things that we need to attend to when we think about what does it mean to be first gen. Wow, thank you for um, starting us all off. This, this next question that I wanna to pose to all of you is a question that I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to know more about. Um, research shows that many first generation students experience a level of stress and anxiety. I think other research speaks to mental challenges, psychological issues, and for me, when I was a, a first, you know, when I first came to college, um, I was the first in my family to go. I was the oldest. There was expectations that were, that I don't think my parents directly put on me, but I just felt, right, that that I was supposed to help and get get the family, help the next generation. There was just a lot of stuff going through my head, and so I'm curious. For example, imposter syndrome. Uh, I know that Howard London speaks to breakaway guilt. These are the things that were running through my mind. Can you speak to some of maybe the internal thoughts and, and uh, reflections that college students, first generation college students may experience or feel about feel? And I'm gonna direct that. LT, why don't you kick us off on this one? Uh, sure, I, I think Glenn, what you are addressing are some of the risk factors, right? That come with being first generation. You mentioned imposter syndrome. Um, and, and I was uh, chuckling a little bit when you said you may not have, no one may have explicitly stated that they had those expectations, but you still felt them, right? And um, our friend Rebecca Covarubius from UC Santa Cruz writes about um, academic achievement guilt that students may, first generation students particularly may experience as they're navigating college and they're encountering opportunities that their family members didn't study abroad, being able to choose a major and uh, you know, talk about being passionate about a career. Many of our, our parents <laughs> didn't have the opportunity to choose what their career is. And so all of those things may um, come into play for a lot of our students. I can't believe we've made it this far and haven't mentioned COVID yet, but you know, we do need to, uh, to address that um, because we have to talk about the context in the moment that um, many of our students also are more than just students. Their identities, their, some of their identities may include being a worker, maybe being a good son or good, good or just a good a child and how they're um, negotiating and what this means for mental health, right? So there, like you said, could be a lot of anxiety and stress layered. But again, I also am a strengths-based person. So I also wanna show the, the, the positive side to many of those things. And Roshni had addressed this Robert, you've got this great light shining on you. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, as the sun's going down, I suppose I should switch that though, huh? Because it's probably not great for camera. Thank you for pointing it out. Go. That's better. But I, I've been sainted, thing. you know, now that I'm retired. Yeah, exactly. So that's, what, that's what it is. It gave me sainthood status as well. You know. <laughs> but no working phone. All right. Uh, but one, one term that I like to share with with students is being a cultural broker. Um, and oftentimes that comes into play with, um, with language translation where, you know, folks, I think Rosh was just talking about this, where you may, maybe your role in the family is being the, the ambassador for your family. And you are um, navigating with, um, with uh, uh, social services or with, with other teachers. And that was my role in my family in English is our, is, is our primary language, but being the first generation person in my family, I was the face of my family at the same time. And so while that may have caused some stress for sure, but look at all the strengths that it gave me as well, being, um, being able to own that and being, a, um, again, like a leader. So those are, those are many of the factors that, that folks may not be aware of when they're talking about first generation. It's not just that your parents didn't go to college, there are all these other things that come into play. Wow, what you just shared really resonated yeah. with me. I've never heard the term cultural broker and you described my experience. Uh, my parents actually stopped teaching me my native, my first language because I needed to represent the family here. Really interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. Roshne. 
Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about how you were talking about um, uh, sort of the notion of guilt or feeling like um, in your success, um, maybe there's a feeling of leaving other people behind or having to sometimes shed yourself of certain identities that tie you to your community. And so one of the things um, I found in both my research and work um, in the stories of first generation students is that um, there is this immense pride, but also there's this one theme that emerged from a study I did some years ago. And it's this idea of feeling like a burden of privilege that you are, you have this immense privilege because you get to go do all these things and go to study abroad or whatever else it might be. Um, but you're also aware that um, your journey is not a individual journey. It's an interdependent and a communal journey, right? You're not just like, um, and I think that's one thing that's also a really important part of the first gen experience that that burden of that backpack you're carrying is your backpack, but it's your parents and your siblings are in there and your cousins and then sometimes your community. And so if you don't do well, it's not just like, oh, you know, Joe didn't do so well. Well, no, Joe's whole family. And what does that mean to have to negotiate that um, while also um, negotiating these uh, these other identities and imposter phenomenon that you um, referred to that that comes around and one thing that I, that I think interesting is that I think some of the questions that first gen students have other students have those questions too it's just they feel more comfortable asking them because they ask questions but when you know someone's framed your experience from a deficit experience then it's sort of like if I ask this, what does this reveal about me and how much how much vulnerability do I want to give this audience in a place that I don't feel like I belong in? So I think it's, it's it, it complicates it. I do think that as we do this work, one of the things I think a lot about is how do we as practitioners, scholars, how do we design things, design programs, design spaces that walk this line and the line is, I think, saying, yes, there are incredibly difficult transitions that students make, and, and we, need to, um, we need to recognize those, and they also bring this capital, but being careful not to get into this like resilience grit stuff, which is like somehow there's like some first-gen superhero, and, and there is some of that, you know, as the first-gen narrative has um, become hipper, and now more and more people are talking about it. Um, it's sort of like um, we're doing some of a little bit of this rah 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 stuff, and it, right. I, I'm not undermining the value of recognizing capital, the navigational capital, the cultural capital, language capital, all those things, but also recognizing that that doesn't necessarily make it easier to pass through these paths, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Still, it yeah. still pokes, yeah. uh, and you have to think about that, and you have to think about how you're giving students the language to speak to their own capital. Yeah. Um, and and I think giving them a space to negotiate that, I think. Yeah. So I had two thoughts if I could jump in here. So so one, Rashi, to I, I'm thinking exactly what you say. You know, there's a on the one hand, we hear these great stories, you know, people who've come up from nothing, quote unquote, to be something. Yes. But the downside of that, sometimes it's not that's not that inspirational because there's a flip side that says, hey, if they can do it, why can't you, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think we have to be really careful when we do that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's done a lot in our society, especially you know, with social class about people pulling themselves, escaping the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, which I think is a lot of hoo hockey, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we gotta be careful of that. But I think you know the conversation we're having about about our families and everything. Your guys' story, it really plays up intersectionality because your stories are so different than mine. So at some point when I was doing this research, so I had my family, large Irish Catholic family, eight siblings, seven boys, one girl. I was the fifth boy in a row. And so uh, I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to uh, and they're all from rural New York State. Every time I went home to visit, I'd drag my camera and interview one of my siblings to ask them what it was like to be a first gen, because everybody at least did two years of school. Did having a brother go to school matter? How'd they feel about having it? And it was really I, to be sort of the epitome of um, competition. 
you know, we weren't helping each other. And what also happened in this is that after my first brother went from, he uh, transferred successfully to a four-year school, and my parents were appalled at the changes that my brother went through. And so they actively worked against us to go on for college. Um, and some of the other brothers were the same way. They were really appalled that, that we would go on, as th those that went on, and thought that the changes that happened just really pulled us from the neighborhood and the family. And it was really, really, really hard. Um, so, it, you know, in my, some of the work that I'm doing, I think that being uh, first gen, you have to develop a certain sense of biculturalism because you do go into a whole new social class when you're losing, when you're learning all that stuff that, that colleges want you to know because it ain't stuff that, that we learned growing up, right? Um, and it makes it a little bit difficult. So you got to be able to, to negotiate both groups. Um, but this conversation, I think, really speaks to the, the notion of intersectionality. Uh, because again, um, each first-gen story is a little bit different, potentially. I'm not sure if it's my turn yet, but no, I'm just going to jump in really quickly. In. Um, when I was hearing you talk, Rob, about taking you know, the photos of your family, I, first of all, I want to see those and I want to talk to you about it more at another time. <laughs> but I was thinking of this photo voice project I did with TRIO programs where students took photographs and wrote narratives about their experiences being first gen in different identities. And one sort of photograph that tended to appear across whether they were talking about their multiple identities or social class or their academic identities were students often took pictures of bridges or roads that you could not see the end of. And they were using these photos metaphorically, right? But what um, they talked about is like, you know, this, this act of crossing, right? Crossing mm -hmm. into different worlds, then recrossing again and crossing into different worlds. And sometimes those worlds, like they don't understand each other or speak the same language. Exactly. I remember one time I was giving this presentation and I was talking about this process and a gentleman in the back raised his hand and said, well, everybody goes through adult development, you know, um, and, and so this is, a, this is something that all students go through. And I said, no, it, the difference is, is that their worlds aren't competing with each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a vital difference, right? Um, when you're having to translate why a degree in journalism would be a useful degree. Um, when really it was like, there's four degrees, you're doing this, this or this, right? And that's shifting. And I think we're doing a better job of helping students take home the language that they could speak to with regard to that. Um, but it, it's still um, this notion of like multiple crossings over time is mm -hmm. I think real. And I think it happens then when people cross into the workforce as well. Because yeah. I know um, LT will want to jump in here. I, we, this is, wow. <laughs> I'm really appreciating I'm, I'm losing track where we're at in part because I, this is very personal and I'm starting to think about like all the different types of things that are, that I was going through and you're connecting it to some of this wonderful, um, this research and these, these thoughts. I, I wanted to ask this question around, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of issues um, that, that first-generation students experience, they think about, they reflect, and, and just how they situate themselves and, and their context. And a common roadblock that I oftentimes see is first-generation gen students, I know I did, was how do I even find out about opportunities or that, that there are programs and services or people who can assist me in kind of maneuvering some of these stressors and anxiety. And these were the things I was going through 10, 15 something, 20, maybe more years ago, right? And so I'm curious to know about, has that changed? Uh, I know that when I do a Google search and on first generation, there's so many different amount of information now online. And I wonder uh, about that. I wonder, I've seen things from like the first generation student success. I know LT, uh, you, you and empowering first gen college students on Facebook is my go-to. Uh, I just joined <laughs> and I, I went down that rabbit hole and I was amazing, amazing. Um, but there's also lots of um, information also on Instagram. But if you could speak to that, has, has the, um, how are student, uh, first generation students becoming aware and, and, and is the method to learn about resources changed over time? 
Yeah, thanks for that. Because um, what you're getting at is one of my favorite topics besides basketball and the flash, talking about prints, curriculum, prints, and, yeah, and the hidden curriculum. <laughs> Um, but the hidden curriculum, such an important concept, Glenn, like when I learned that, and again, I was in a doctoral program in literature, not even in education, but once I understood hidden curriculum as the set of rules, behaviors, and expectations that are, um, that folks are expected to know, but not explicitly taught, my mind was blown and you helped explain a lot of things of why I didn't know things. And so but again, going back to what Rosh and Rob were talking about already, of course, like if you're new to an experience, all first year students are going to not know, they're going to not know some things, right? It's who do you, who are the resources around you that will help you explain something? I just think of my own daughter who, when she was 16 and we were talking about her college application experience, and she reminded me that she was going to get a BFA and not a BA, and I was thinking, when I, was a, when I was 16 years old, I did not know the difference between getting a bachelor's in fine arts versus a bachelor's degree in arts, right? But she's grown up around, I always use my children as the extreme experience of literally growing up on a college campus and being around higher education literally their whole lives versus someone who is new to that experience, right? And so folks don't know what they don't know. And mm -hmm. it, it is a contingent upon the institution, I would argue, to help be more explicit and transparent about what it is we are expecting of students. And sometimes, oftentimes we jump to things like policies, which are important, but we forget other things too. Like, is it okay to walk across the grass, for example? How, how do students know that? And if you don't feel like you belong, and you're kind of looking around and looking for cues, you're having to pick up cues all the time. Whereas if, if we were more explicit and direct about what it is that we um, want out of students and would certainly help their journey. You asked if things changed? Yes, I think they have, especially within the past five years where you could not Google, Rob was saying this too, you couldn't Google first gen and come up with like a whole list of things. Now you've got clubs and orgs and swag and buttons and things, whereas literally five years ago, someone said, is it okay to say first gen? Don't they feel badly about their experience? You know, so we're shifting from that and it's nice to see online communities that helps support that type of thing too. I just, I'm just concerned that just because things are, um, can be found now on the website, you can Google that people feel like, oh, our work is done. I would say, you know, the, the cure to things could be found on, uh, uh, if, on a Google search if we knew where to look for them, right? And so students still, students will go to, they will Google something anyway before they go and ask a staff member or a faculty member. If they're asking any one of us, we are their last resort, right? They've already gone online. So we just have to be mindful of what we're sharing on there and making sure that we're not using acronyms and, and things like that. Love that. I remember when I was, when I first started college, I didn't know what office hours were. Oh, that, no. that, was, that was hidden to me. I had no yeah. idea. Like, mm -hmm. so eight to five, right? Like, right. <laughs> Anyways, Rob, would you like to add to that? Yeah, yeah, you know, I've got to, I sure would hope that things are improving. Um, we certainly are pumping a lot of money into it and resources into it. So if it's not improving, I guess shame on, on us. I had to share this anecdote to LT as you're talking about this. It just made me think, you know, back when I did my first, when I was working on my dissertation, and I went to college in the in the mid '70s, and like we all said, you know, first generation, we didn't know what that was, uh, but certainly had my my struggles. Then when I did my dissertation study, what I decided to do was um, do a group of first generation white low income males, people just like me, but a lot younger, and I followed them over the course of their year. Uh, and just met with them every two, three weeks um, to just ask the question of how's it going? What's, what's going well? What's not going well? And I got to tell you, the stuff that they're saying, the stuff that they were feeling, it was almost like a, a, a therapy group for me, a group therapy, because I thought, holy cow, this is 20 years, 25 years later, and you're having the same experience, or at least having the same feelings 
that as if, you know, issues related to preparation, uh, feelings about not belonging, uh, feelings of lack of support. How do you get that? Who do you turn to? That kind of thing. And I just thought, huh, this is really something. And I still think on some level, those feelings are still there. They're still there. So, um, and the reason that I wrote the book um, and, you know, is trying to make people on some level understand if they're a first generation the student themselves and now they're a professional, maybe they've never really dealt with these feelings of how they got there, trying to understand some of that, but also for people who aren't first gen to try and understand what it's like, almost from a, a counseling perspective of have some empathy to understand what it is like for students, because even though we have a lot more services, they're still going through these feelings. Um, and I think that's probably for me, the most important thing that we can do for people working with students uh, these days. Um, I think after listening to the contributions of LP and, and Rob, one of the things I think a lot about is, yeah, you know, as you said, like, you know, we tend to go to policies and practices and that's certainly a big part of it, you know, breaking those down. But I think even before that, like, what are we asking our students? They know stuff and they know what they don't know. We don't always know that. So mm -hmm. think about like, what is the exercise of putting in front of students, your syllabus, your, um, programmatic materials, your plans for when you're going to hold a parent orientation, because if their parents are working at that time, they can't come, then what use is that? So in what way are we engaging students in um, structurally or deconstructing the way things have been built so that we're not continuing to build them the same way, right? It's like, it's great to get a beanie that says first gen. I love it. I want one, but that isn't necessarily going to help me traverse the path any easier, right? Um, so I, I, I feel like when I think about the roadblocks of now, um, some of it is that sometimes this um, elevation of first gen is happening, at, happening on campuses at a 30,000 foot level. And the way in which first gen is being employed um, becomes a complicated proxy for diverse students, whatever that term means. Um, and it, it, it's then not attending to like the lived experience of what's happening um, for students in their everyday life and their everyday um, experience. I think the other part of it too, just to touch a little bit on the stress and anxiety component is um, if you're in classes or in spaces in co-curricular spaces where suddenly your whole world and way of being is unpacked and you have to then take that and like, you have to do something with that, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And you can eat, you can push it down or you can negotiate it through or you can talk to other people about it. But there is a there's a weightiness to that. And so how we support students as we're empowering them is also vitally important. Um, I just finished a study on first generation graduate students. So students who mm. have a family to go to college and now in graduate school. And one of the things they talked a lot about is the reason they came to graduate school is they wanted to make. Um, they wanted to deconstruct things that didn't work in their own communities, um, wanted to fix things. But that also involves unpacking racism, classism, social systems. And that is hard when it's your research, right? So you're examining yourself and your community and that there's a weight in that. So I think that's that's a, a part of the some of the challenges that um, are uh what happens when the work now becomes um, central and everybody's talking about it? It still it still means you carry those weights and you have to negotiate them. And I, I hear add Bob's story. Oh, please, please. I want to add to that. Feeling, um, I love listening to Roshni, um, but we have to ask students what they want, what they need, and we really have to be open open to listening to them. And that's really critical. It seems so obvious, but it really isn't. So we we have to be open to the feedback and be willing to do things differently. And again, it can be, um, um, like, I, I think, I think of, of one of my um, most brilliant students, Chris, who um, was resist, resistant to going on a, uh, what do you call it, one of those alternative break trips, like throughout the state, like we weren't even traveling outside the state. Um, and he just didn't want to do it and actually like sat down with him. His concern was that he didn't know what colors 
to wear outside of his neighborhood, oh. right? Rob, talk about intersections, right? Yeah. That yeah. was his issue. And he's like, I don't know what they're wearing in the Central Valley. So I need to, and I can't wear LMU colors because then that's red. So that was, that. I wasn't prepared for that, but I had to be open to listening to him and find out what were Chris's concerns. And so we, Chris, can you wear gray? Can you wear black? And so as opposed to shutting him down, and, and, um, and not taking his lived experience seriously, mm -hmm. we had to listen to him and think about, okay, what could work for you? And then that established trust. He's like, okay, I can, LT's cool, you know, like someone, someone is there for me, but we really have to be open to that type of feedback and accepting these students' stories and not trying to change them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because situations like that, it'd be very easy to say, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. What do you mean, what are you gonna wear? Right. And I think sometimes the first gen questions that we get are on that level of, well, how do you mean that? That's a, that's, a, that's a crazy question. Why don't you just go to the office hours or that kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas some things are, yeah, have some consequences they're, they're, they're and raise some fear. That's right. Real fear. Like, oh, yeah. what are you doing with that financial aid check? Hey, you're sending it back home. That's what you're doing. But, <laughs> and we can't be judgmental about that. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, LT, you, you sort of start to answer the question, uh, the next question that I have. And, um, and it also stays uh, um, aligned with what Rashnay was speaking to about the deconstruction of systems. And let me pose this question and get um, your, your all thoughts on this. Um, student affairs executive leaders, campus leaders, um, um, you know, what can we do, what can they do to make sure the experiences of first-gen students is heard. So you, you, you answered it by saying, we need to listen to the students, right? But is there, I'm, I'm gonna pose this, is there more? Is, is there things that they can do when it comes to college systems and structure, the deconstruction of it potentially, right? Um, or I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Uh, and, and is there a solution um, or is there no solution? I mean, I, and I'm, I seriously mean that because I mean, we've been tackling this issue for decades and yeah, um, I think I'm there's not. always solutions. Okay, so there's always plural. solutions, right? Um, is this question five? This is question five. <laughs> Yay! I can speak now. Then you're up. <laughs> I feel like yeah, she's so just right. making sure I wasn't jumping the line. All right. Um, so you know, I think systems are complicated. They're variant and the geography and the politics of scale are different at different places. So I think you got to attend to that. You can't pretend that you got one cookie cutter model is going to work everywhere. It isn't. Nothing that can be packaged and sold is going to solve it, right? Um, but I do think there are some ways to think about, um, you know, first is, you know, how are first-gen students being defined on your campus? Where are you assessing that definition? You know, for example, when I started to look at the first-gen students on with the grad study, um, we noticed that the way in which they filled that out, even on the grad application was unclear. So we didn't know who we were getting. So once that was fixed, that changes things drastically, right? So just thinking about how, how is it being defined on your campus, even across offices or across uh, campuses, if you, will, you know, live in a multi-system campus. Um, the other is, you know, what is then, um, the intersectional experience of the first-gen students on your campus, you know, um, looking at the issues of race, social class, immigrant, refugee, other identities, um, what, what ways do you have of knowing who your students are? Because once you know that, you can start to tailor things, right? You can tailor things to meet their particular needs. What works, you know, at a small private liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon is not going to work at UCLA. Um, we need different things. So I think that's part of it. And then you can get into sort of unpacking, I think, um, the ways in which people will always say like, oh, we, we did that, you know, we did learning communities in 1971. Okay, but there's diff there are different ways of doing them now. Can we talk about that? Um, I, so, so I think thinking about um, if we want to kind of, if we want to attack those sort of structural inequities there's some very concrete ways in which we can go about just assessing information on our campus first um, to, to feel out what's missing in those very beginning stages um, before we, we wanna we, you know, change things drastically. And, and change is necessary, I'm not, I'm not questioning that, it's just um, what are ways we can begin that? 
um, that don't have to feel so daunting. If this wasn't a recorded podcast, I would have shouted, yes. <laughs> well, I always did, already did a big woot woot to trio. So now I, you know. <laughs> Rob, would you like to, to build off that? Um, sure. You know, I, I like to say there's no silver bullet. There's no, there's answers, but probably not an answer. And I think, unfortunately, uh, at some of the schools we're at, some of the places that we're at, people are looking for an answer. There must be one answer, but we know that's not the case. Uh, we know that there's issues related to preparation for college or first generations. We know there's issues related to um, support when they get here. We know there's issues related to developing some sense of belonging. So knowing that, you know, the literature is pretty clear about those three things. So to me, the answer is, all right, uh, what are we doing to help students get prepared? Um, and maybe that is dipping down into the high schools and working with local high schools and helping people take the, the pre-SAT and the SAT and the FAFSA. Are we helping people do that? Um, and then with the support here, do we have sufficient supports and are we really letting people know about them, encouraging people to take care of them. And, and then this sense of belonging, which, which I guess can be kind of a nebulous sense. You know, we all want to feel like we belong, but I think the literature is very clear with first gens that they're, they almost, each first gen almost needs to have a hero, someone to take them, the person under their wing, walk them through this, make sure they, they get that. So rather than it being, well, it's everybody's job, so somebody's doing, it's gotta be my job. People have really got to take on that responsibility for the person so the person really feels like they belong there because they know if they don't show up for class, somebody's gonna miss them. They don't show up for, um, for the residence hall meeting, somebody's gonna miss them. If you don't feel like anybody's gonna miss you, well, you know, what's the point? So uh, to me, that's where we have to make sure that we're putting our efforts into those three areas of preparation and support and belonging. Uh, but it's not easy. It's not easy. No, that's real. LT. Glenn, I'll just talk about um, staff for a second, because sure. what we find oftentimes is first-generation folks who go on to careers are often in higher eds, particularly often drawn to supporting uh, you know, folks like them. And so you find them in trio programs, student success centers and things like that. So overwhelmingly first generation, often people of color, not, not exclusively, but they're clustered in those entry-level jobs, right? As coordinators, as assistant directors. So what are those of us who are in positions to support those staff members? What are we doing to help their professional development? We talked about this earlier, making sure that folks are current, you know, so sending them off to conferences to make sure that they know what the, what the, you know, the state of affairs is now, but also being transparent about things like travel reimbursements, salary negotiations, things like that. So that's another form of hidden curriculum all over again that um, is not made available to a wide swath of people because ultimately, we need folks from these backgrounds who understand these students to be in key leadership position. We need them to be tenured faculty. We need them to be our, our vice provost and eventually our presidents as well. So how are we cultivating leadership of our first gen staff? That, that's, that's really a strong interest of mine to make these changes. Thank you for raising that. I know we were having that conversation before we actually started recording, and I think that's an important um, point to highlight and, and raise. So we're getting close to time, believe it or not. This Sad. Is, we all, I know, right? We can go, I, can, I feel like we can go on longer. Um, you have time with this question, and I wanna make sure that uh, uh, this is, this is uh, student first now, and we always ask this question as sort of a wrap up. Um, whether it's um, something you heard on this, in this conversation uh, or in, from this panel group, or maybe in your work and your, in your research, when you're writing, um, if you could take a minute or two or three uh, to summarize, what are you still pondering about? Or what are some of the questions that you still have? Or if we think about today's first generation students, what are you excited about? Um, what are you thinking about now? And 
LT, you're up first. Wow, so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just do it in like three minutes, you know. That's right, you have 10 seconds. <laughs> three minutes. I'll say first, building upon my own background in literature, cultural studies, I'm always fascinated by the representation of first-generation students in popular culture and media on TV shows, like we're starting to see more explicit storylines about first-generation folks. Like the, I haven't seen it yet, but I've been told to watch Made on Netflix that it's an explicit first-generation story. And I always find a lot of value in highlighting those storylines. As far as my own research though, um, Rob, you'll really appreciate this. I'm, gonna, I'm doing a deeper dive in the Black first-gen identity. One of my arguments uh, is that Black first-gen identity is both hyper-visible and invisible at the mm -hmm. same time. So it's great that we have icons like Michelle Obama, right? Arguably one of our most popular figures. She's explicitly talking about that identity in her work. Um, but there's so many other figures out there that we haven't done a deep enough dive in, but are existing in our imagination. I think of Breonna Taylor, who's never talked about as having been a Black first-gen student who started off at the University of Kentucky, actually, and then went, she, she did the reverse transfer process, right? Started off at a four-year, then went to a community college and was trying to make her way back when her life was taken away from her. We don't talk about her experience. When we think about the life of Colin Powell, another Black first-generation college student who used the military also as a pathway to success, who described himself as an average student, right? But then went on to get a master's degree. Like it's, it's incredible. So um, I'm really interested in focusing on mental health and Black first-gen students, career support um, and, and representations as well. So that, that's, where, that's where my mind, my mind is always all over the place, but that's, that's where it is today. If you ask me six months, who knows what I'll be talking about. Thank you. Roshni. Ooh. So I thought about certain things that LT always takes me to another place. <laughs> I thought that about you. Don't blame me. Um, I, um, so um, I'll come back to the point around um, what LT was talking about. Um, but I, but one thing I want to say, and I, we haven't talked about it really, but it, it's so, um, it's so obvious how COVID has uh, laid bare uh, the what we already know as these incredible inequities around social class and race and the first gen um, status and the intersection of the of of that. So one of the things I'm really I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm I'm not sure whether to be hopeful or worried. I think a bit of both. Um, to what extent will we take those lessons in higher ed? and employ them to do things differently because COVID forced us to do a lot of things differently real fast, right? Which doesn't happen in higher ed. And it was like, oh, we actually don't need five people in person at a committee meeting. You can do two and it still works. Look at that. So, you know, those are little things, but what are ways in which those experiences have taught us that there are other ways to go around um, addressing issues around um, inequities? And will we take, will we heed the call? Um, I think there are places that are already doing that, and then there are places that are um, hungry to get back to the normal and are calling it whatever the new normal is. I'm like, there's no normal. That's gone. Please let that go. And let's use this information to move forward in meaningful ways. The other is financial issues and financial aid continue to be incredibly pressing for students who are first in their family to go to college and in graduate school. Um, and whether we're talking about the Pell Grant and increase of Pell Grants, whether we're talking about the canceling of student debt, these issues will continue to be, um, you can create the most wonderful sense of belonging, but in the end, if there is no money to pay that bill, you are going home. Mm -hmm. And that is real. And we cannot forget about that. And in Trio, that's a really big part of the work, you know. Um, the other thing I've thought a lot about is, um, because I grew up in student affairs and I thought originally along, what is the work we can do to sustain students? 
Um, but then as I started to look at higher ed, um, sort of like from a um, ecological model, you see that, you know, all of the student affairs stuff, it circles around the center and the center is classrooms and moving towards your degree program and things like that. So to make change and to make sustainable change around the experience of first-gen students, students of color, indigenous students, I think that how we orient faculty to what they do in their classrooms, in their labs, how they unpack their fields and their disciplines, we, we have to. And if we don't get in those uncomfortable places to do that work, because you know the domain of faculty can sometimes feel distant and away. If we as faculty, and I'm talking about myself, don't push that, then we will, we will lose ground. Um, because of all these other issues, the financial constraints, et cetera, the, the students that we get there won't stay um, because we have to intentionally deconstruct that and realize the way in which um, that creates so many blockades for students that really don't need to be blockades. Um, and that's going to be difficult, but I think it's it's really important. It's a really important part of the work. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that fantastic insight and, yeah. um, and I heard yeah. a call to action several call to action <laughs> in that. that that was that was wonderful Rob take us home uh well you know Glenn I when I when my book came out this spring and then I retired I thought my thinking days were over and then uh Roshni had the audacity to ask me beyond the beyond the journal so I you know I had to I had to get back up to speed and so I got to say, you know, as we were reading the, getting the articles in the journal, it's just fascinating the kinds of things people are thinking about in this field. And so to read these articles, um, I'm just really jazzed about where uh, it's going, especially for me in particular, this the notion of intersectionality, which we've touched about. You know, thank goodness we're getting away from the idea that, you know, first gens are a monolithic whole and Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the other intersections in their life. And the thing that I've been thinking about lately, and actually Rashi and I talked about it briefly, is that, you know, there's this theory when students study abroad, this U theory, that students start out really happy to go abroad, and then they get to go abroad, and then they're really miserable because the food is different, and they don't speak the language, and uh, they dress funny and all that kind of stuff, and then they have to sort of bottom out. And then hopefully... They start working their way back up the curve to the point where they're really so happy they don't want to go home. And I've been thinking that, you know, there's a lot of uh, parallels there with first generation students, conceivably. Hopefully, they're excited to come on campus and then they get here and then, oh my gosh, it's really tough. And then they start, and we have to make sure that when they hit that bottom, if they do, they don't just give up. We, we work them back up to the top of that, the top of that curve. Um, you know, and and being silly, of course, and the curve is a big smile, so a big smile on their face when they get to that point. But anyway, <laughs> so now that Rashti has made me think uh, beyond my expiration date, those are the things that I've been thinking about lately. Standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> we just keep pulling our, our mentors and our guides back in. Appreciate She that. has a way of doing that, that's for sure. Now, I, I want to, this was uh, a pleasure to be uh, hosting this, this podcast with all of you. And I want to thank our guests, Rob, Robert, uh, Roshne, and LT. I want to also just really mention to the, our audience, our listeners out there, go to our website and go to this episode's uh, resources. Um, this panel of we have authors, writers, researchers. We have Facebook moderate. I mean, we have this is a this is a, a an incredible I mean, the conversation we had before this podcast, and I'm sure right after we finish recording, um, it's amazing. And I really hope you check out um, what they're going to put um, in that section. Um, I want to thank Nat and Brosy really quick as well. Obviously, Nat, thank you behind the scenes. She handles um, all these episodes, transcribes it, gets it ready for for airing. Um, and again, we want to thank our sponsor, Stylus Publishing. Um, Stylus is a proud sponsor for Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. 
at Stylus Pop and whatever the next social media thing is, they'll probably be there too. Um, <laughs> leadership, <laughs> leadership, thank you. Um, they partnered with colleges and universities to, uh, to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just and caring, thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit, visit them at https www.leadership.org forward slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. These shows would not be possible without their support, so thank you. And to our audience and listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, again, this is part one of a two-part series. Uh, next week, we'll be focusing in on first-generation professionals. If you're listening today and if you're not receiving a newsletter, go to studentaffairsnow.com. Go to the bottom and click on the mail and sign up for the MailChimp list. Um, again, I'm Glenn Guzman. Thank you for listening or watching wherever you are. Go out, make it a good day, make a difference. Bye, everybody. 